Thank you, Pastor E. Um, again, welcome. It's a pleasure again to be here. Can I just kind of outline what I, I hope to do and I hope to accomplish today? Um, again, today, as um, our last service in 2020, I just want to offer a bit of a retrospective sermon, kind of looking back at the year um, and kind of highlighting what I think we've been learning and what I, I believe I will be taking into the new year and hopefully trying to kind of, you know, inculcate this into my life to, 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 to mesh this with my life, my, my understanding of who I am as a believer. And hopefully you will too. Um, we've had a great year of teaching in 1 Corinthians and um, I believe it has been incredibly beneficial and have spoken to us. And so I kind of want to go through go through what I believe is, um, has been a highlight for me and something that I think even in linked to current affairs um, will really speak um, to us quite clearly about how the gospel speaks into current events. Um, Pastor Mikey will be giving us our vision next week of the year and uh, again we, we praise the Lord that he will be able to speak um, into that new vision of where do we go in 2021. But again, just for me this week, I just want to look back and, um, and offer some clarity of what I think we've been learning this year. Um, I've given my title um, of which I am chief, which is somewhat obscure, but if anyone knows their Bible, they know that it's a quote from First Timothy, um, of which I am chief. Um, I want to take this time just to pray, and, um, and then I kind of want to, as it were, just make my case for what I believe the Lord has been teaching us. Father, we are so thankful for again um, uh, being able to come together, Lord, through the digital realm. Father, for us in this, in, in this building, you know, somewhat physically, um, well, physically, to be here, Lord, and to be present, um, again, to present your word. Thank you, Father, for the faithfulness that we've seen um, through the teams coming together and being able to put these services together. Thank you, Father, for what we have been able to add to our repertoire, Lord God, of what we can do, what we can accomplish, Lord. As, um, as Pastor E quite rightly said, Lord, um, you know, just seeing even through the praise team um, making leaps and bounds, we are seeing... Um, new innovations in the projection team, new innovations in the sound team there, Lord God, and, and even in the video team, Lord. And, and, and Lord, these are things, that, Lord, that we have um, definitely gained through this season of pandemic. So thank you, Father, for this. Thank you, Father, for the, what you've taught us even more so through your word. Lord, I, I, you know, even as we may be just ready to jettison and, and get ourselves ready for a new book and new teachings there, Lord God, um, I pray that, Lord Father, we will take this time, especially as we go through this sermon, Lord, to, to really kind of dig deep into what we have been learning. Maybe we've been quick to forget. Maybe we have been quick, there, Lord God, to move on because of the difficulties of some of the texts that we've been dealing with. But, Lord, I, I pray that you hold our feet to the fire. And hold us, dear Lord God, accountable for what we have heard and what we have learned. So that, Lord God, we can do better, Lord God. Not that, Lord Father, we are one to preempt glorification, because that will only happen when you come. But, Lord, as a part of our sanctification, as a part of that process of, 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 of drawing nearer to you, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do it well. Help me, dear Lord God, to make that clear through what, Lord, you've put on my heart today. So have your way, we pray. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there was a time, seemingly, when, we could, when it could be said that a national crisis had the advantage of uniting the most divided nation. If such a time existed, and I doubt that it has, more recent history has not borne witness to it. Looking back at the, for example, the Vietnam War, it made the USA an even more divided country than it was before it. Even in the UK, leading up to the Second World War, there were deep divides, both publicly and politically, with many wanting to make peace with Nazi Germany as it invaded one country after another. Today, it is also true that the problems are deepening divides along sex, ethnicity, political party, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, pro-lockdown, anti-lockdown, whatever else you can name. It seems quite evident that societies all over the world are fracturing into smaller and smaller communities at an increasing rate. It reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. In Daniel 2, verse 41 to 44, it says this, And I saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. You know, we've seen this fracturing in, in very real sense. You know, the former Yugoslavia, we see free ethnicities fighting for their own territory. In Syria, more recently, we've seen um, ISIS wanting to carve out a place for itself. We've seen, we've seen, oh, good Lord, I can't even remember the name of them now. But an, the other ethnic group wanting to carve out its own place in Syria as well. We're seeing this happening. And obviously, we're seeing this even in our own societies with groups coming together and wanting, as it were, to make a place for themselves within society, not necessarily their own country. It seems prudent, though, to note that God, what God has allowed to become a judgment on the unbelieving world ought not to become a judgment on the believing community as well. In looking back at our time in 1 Corinthians, we should now appreciate how dangerous it is to allow such divisions to take root in the church. 
I want to highlight two issues within Paul's letter that I think speak quite sharply into our current climate. Strangely enough, the two issues I want to bring us back to actually bookend Paul's letter. This, I think, is no coincidence, as this latter point in the letter also speaks to the first point. The first one I want to highlight to you is in 1 Corinthians 1.10. And this is his first point after his introductions. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The second issue comes in his... Paul's breakdown of the resurrection. And I believe what he comes up with, that last point that he makes, even though obviously he does continue to talk in, in 1 Corinthians 16 about the giving of gifts and the giving of money and whatnot, but yet this is his last major point. And he says this in verses 30, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 to 34, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We can expect issues to divide us if Christ is not our ultimate source. Issues outside the believing community can have a detrimental effect on our relationships with one another if we are not reliant on the gospel. It is to our shame, as Paul states, if we find ourselves at odds with a fellow believer because of the influence of someone who has no fear of God. And this need not be someone who is completely secularized. It could be even someone who speaks, as it were, as a believer, but really not speaking the truth as the gospel brings it. I've recently experienced how separate my worldview is from the majority of the UK. When undergoing, undergoing a safeguarding review, so in my workplace, we, we, you know, as many of you do, have to do safeguarding training. And I wonder how many of you have come up with this question, as I came up with last week. And it said this, is safeguarding a moral or a legal obligation? I almost immediately was drawn to answer it as a moral one when I realized that according to the test and the training that I had been going through, it required me to answer it as a legal one. It's interesting that the moral, that is the internal witness, the conscience that God speaks to directly, is placed aside from, as it were, the legal one, the external witness, that which is written down. I do not have time to take you to the Sermon on the Mount 
and argue that Jesus placed the internal witness of the law, the moral law, over the external witness of the law. Even that was what was written on the Ten Commandments was not enough to govern the bad behavior. Jesus had to take them right to the heart of the issue. And so, I mean, that's just an example of where we stand, isn't it, between us and the world. A legal obligation versus a moral obligation. Now I take us to our scripture that I, I kind of want to focus, and I, it was on my heart, strangely enough, most of December as I, I was kind of going on and thinking about the Advent season, and even not even actually thinking about what I would preach this particular day, but this actually I have been teaching throughout December um, in my chaplaincy, and I thought it, it was fitting, especially as I look back at 1 Corinthians of what we've been learning, and just how it kind of pictures the Advent but also pictures what is of ultimate importance in the Advent for us today. So my reading is from 1 Timothy 1, and it's from verse 12 to 17. And it says this, reading from the ESV, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom? I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that, it, that in me, as the foremost or the chief, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The striking feature of the advent for Paul that may be very different for many others, but for Paul it was that Christ came into the world in order to save the irredeemable people such as himself. Paul even goes further to highlight himself as being at the top of the list of the most reprobate sinner. This is one of those scriptures in which I think I re I've learned so, I've learned from the King James and so of which I am chief. And it kind of sticks with me there. So that's why I've, I've, I've titled it after the, the King James Version, which obviously has stuck with me um, a lot closer. But foremost obviously has its own place. But I, I like to think of chief of sinners. He wears the crown. You know, if you think of it in, um, in the terms of, of a, a Native American chief, you know, he wears the feathers. If you said, if you came into the town of sinners... Paul pictures himself as, if you called out the chief, he would walk out. He's in charge of them. 
You know, as a Pharisee and a devout Jew, it would seem quite impossible to imagine him as being in most need of Jesus. I mean, he's devout. I mean, we, 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 we see this in the text. We see this in the book of Acts. Yet it'd be unwise to read this as an empty sentiment that does not take into serious consideration the fallen nature of even the most religiously inclined. As Isaiah said, our righteousness is like filthy rags. As I was thinking about this, it, it, we are inclined to think, oh, it's, a, it's one of those throwaway statements, you know, that we normally say. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner too. But we don't really mean it. And I don't believe that Paul is making that type of sentiment. I believe he's speaking to the heart of his own issues. Note that he saw everything that he did in order to serve God was actually in opposition to him as a blasphemer, persecutor, and as an insolent opponent. However, the grace of Jesus had the final say in his life by overflowing the barriers he had created to keep the gospel out. We are all saved in like fashion by the Spirit of God invading our best defenses. Jesus' own patience is what ultimately makes the difference in any person's life, who would be a believer, that is. When you look back to the events in Acts and had to choose one of the most unlikely converts, Paul, I think, would definitely feature on the top of any list. If not, clearly the top. If Paul is teaching Timothy and ourselves anything, it has to be not to write anybody off. And if you read further into that, this letter, even this very first chapter, you would see that even Hymenius and Alexander, he is not writing off. These people who have shipwrecked their faith, he believes that even as they are delivered to Satan, that God might do something, even in that purpose, to resurrect their faith. In application, we will, in, you know, we will look at how we work with the patience of Christ towards ourselves and others as our salvation is being worked out. I want to pretty much spend the rest of this time just saying, how do we apply this text? How do we take this and say, all right, Richard, this is the gospel, this is the advent, this is what the meaning of coming to Christ, the coming of Christ into the world was for Paul. And, you know, how do I run with that, looking back at 1 Corinthians and, and, and saying, what did we learn? And obviously the first thing we were learning about the divisions of, secular, you know, of sectarianism within the church. Firstly, let me state that the believer is never out of the advent season. Christmas may be gone, but as Christians, we are forever looking back, like Paul, and seeing, for this purpose, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that is me. And so in that sense, I'm constantly looking back to that and seeing that as the result of my justification in Christ. 
But at the same time, we are also looking forward to his coming back. So we are never out of the Advent season. Like Paul, we have the opportunity to see ourselves in relationship to the gospel all throughout the year. Whatever your particular perspective is on current affairs, my encouragement to you is not to allow the trend of the world to come in and invade the space that only Christ can fulfill and satisfy. The danger for us is that our secondary issues are really primary ones that reinterpret the gospel in accordance to our own experience. Our experiences of being sanctified by our Lord will in no doubt be unique to ourselves. But the gospel which saves us will always be the same for everyone. The challenge here is for us to see that trying to think positively about our fellow believer who sees current issues differently is not going to get us very far. And what I mean by that is that, in a sense, just trying to kind of marginalize their beliefs, trying to, to well, okay, just, see, just trying to think positively about them will not work. The way out of this predicament is to follow Paul in developing a true self-knowledge in the face of God. The problem with today's culture is that it assumes the self to be authentic and inevitable. In that sense is that I am who I am. I, I don't really have to go to the gospel. I don't really have to look to God. Who I am and, how I, and the things that surface and the things I believe in really go unchallenged. This view obviously excludes any notion of the fall being central to the human predicament. However, as believers, we cannot overlook this issue even in ourselves. So how do we, as a believing community, take what we have been learned and move forward? Our focus must be the plank in our own eye. And then, and only then, we will be able to deal graciously with the splinter in our brother or sister's eye. As part of my application, I want to just take us to Luke 6, verse 37 to 42. I want to take some time as I read it and, 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 and break that down and and then again, just leave us with some, hopefully, some ways forward of how we can deal with making those divisions evaporate in our lives. So Jesus says this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will he put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. 
Who do you say, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take, or even how to take, out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Firstly, I would like to note that this text does not speak to the exclusion of any believer making judgments. It does not say that, even though it clearly says judge not. What Jesus is excluding is the manner in which certain judgments are made to certain people that rub you up the wrong way. In other words, it's quite a personal aspect of, I don't like that particular person for this particular reason, and therefore I will easily judge him but not judge another, or even myself, if I do the same thing. There are no doubt strong connections here to Matthew 18. That the level in which we appreciate God's grace to ourselves will also be reflecting our grace towards others indebted to us. Verse 38 is not about material blessings, and we've all heard the song, haven't we? If there was ever a song that was completely and utterly misplaced, it is that one of, you know, you know, whilst people are giving their offering, you're singing this song as though it's all about counting our money. Press down, shaking together, running over. This is not about the, the multiplication of material blessings. But actually about our worship. Looking back at 1 Timothy 1, Paul bursts into a doxology, which is praise and worship, when he considers how much he had been forgiven. That last, end, that last verse there, he's, he's praising God, the eternal God, the invisible God. And no doubt our praise and worship will be linked to the knowledge we have of ourselves as being forgiven. Verse 39 gives us a short parable that helps to set us straight on who we are until we actually get it. And we are blind people. Blind sinners cannot help blind sinners. And so the answer obviously means that no. And then the second question is, yes, yes, they will fall into a pit eventually. Trying to correct one another, trying to, as it were, help each other splinter. And being able to see ourselves, and, and again, you know, time does not permit, obviously, to, to look at the theme of blindness, specifically through the New Testament. And particularly how Jesus taught about blindness. The minute, you know, again, John, John 9 being a, being a classic, you know, the minute that people say that they are uh, able to see, again, Jesus says, I can't help you.
can I just make a, a, again, a personal interjection here and says, you know, when it comes to this and what Jesus is saying, there are no experts in justice. All of us are amateurs. All of us are amateurs. We've got to be careful who's teaching us how to do justice. And there's something that we've seen obviously creep up this year is this idea of social justice. And I say we have to be very careful who our teacher is on justice because what Jesus says is that if it's not him, you're a blind person trying to teach another blind people how to do justice properly. If Jesus is your teacher, however, there is a point where he says, you will be able to do justice. Because in a sense, your emphasis, you will not be able to rise above your teacher, and so therefore you will become what your teacher exemplifies, which is, when you, especially when you look at the Gospel of Luke, which is, how do I now help the marginalized who people would write off? Today we need to rethink this. I really believe that we really need to rethink this because today the widows and the orphans are not necessarily the marginalized. People are very much focused on helping those people. We see a place for making sure that they're taken care of. Today the marginalized might be those people whom we would easily preach against. So we need to rethink who we might be needing to invite into our homes or whose homes we need to go to. Blind sinners cannot help blind sinners. And so likewise, when we exercise justice over another without grace, in which we are also in need of ourselves, then we are leading each other into pits and jabbing each other in the eye. Verse 40 now alludes to the sinner saved by grace who comes in alignment with the teacher, the right teacher, with Jesus Christ, um, treat, and, and learns his lessons, which is for this reason that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that's what he's saying. He said, I noticed that I need the grace I've received from Jesus. I, I need that. And others need that too. What follows is verse 41 to 42 is the exercise of restraint in wanting to put people in their place as a distraction. And this is what I say. I highlight that word, distraction to our own self-reflection. If I am noticing all the wrong that is going on around me and all the while spending less and less time on my need for God's grace, then I have put the cart before the horse. I thought a quick lesson in psychology would be helpful here. I found this quote on, on Google and I thought it was interesting. 
Psychological deflection, here's a definition, is somewhat similar to blame shifting. And it's a narcissistic abuse tactic that is often used by narcissists, but even more respectively, covert narcissists. In order to move attention for their bad behavior away from them and then redirect it towards other people they may use as their scapegoats. This whole idea of deflection, you know, I, I, you know, I've got no time for myself. And sometimes, like you said, you can, you can have conversations with people who are, who are very clear and want to speak very long and hard about what other people have done wrong. But very rarely do you want to speak about their own issues. I do meet people who do want to speak about their own issues. Quite often. And I'm grateful to do it. And I'm very, and I'm hopefully very gracious to deal with them. Because I realize they're doing the right thing. This is what I'm having problems with. This is my issues in life. But there are also people you can have conversations with who just see the wrong all everywhere but themselves. I wonder, and this is my theologian speculation going on in my head, if Paul, in his own mind, was a master of deflection before he became a believer. I take this from Acts 26. And what's interesting is in Acts 26, when Paul recounts his own conversion, his own Damascus Road experience, there is one line in there that is not inserted by Luke in the first instance when it's been recorded. And so when he speaks to Felix, he says this, And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I don't know why Luke never recorded that bit, but from Paul's mind, it was quite clear that Jesus said that that second part that that Luke doesn't reflect earlier. It's hard for you to kick against the goat. In other words, Jesus was always prodding him towards the gospel and he was, as it were, maybe intensifying his persecution of believers as a response. It's not them who needs to be saved. It's not me who needs to be saved. It's them who needs to be saved. And the more he kept on feeling this push, this, this prick, you know, the gold is that you know, that spike stick which is used to try and move cattle along. He was, the more he felt that, the more he felt that he needed to put Christians in jail and to death. I put it out there. Maybe he was a master of deflection and hence one of the reasons why he sees himself as the chief of sinners. He was ready and quick to blame others in his former life, as Saul, as he says in his text, I was a persecutor, blasphemer, and an insolent opponent. There is, of course, a degree of irony here as we evaluate the current Western culture, especially its axiom. You know, axiom is a, is a, a, is a general statement that is kind of wild, widely used amongst the culture. And the axiom of 
looking to oneself. I always laugh when I hear that. Um, I, I find it ironic. Look into yourself. There is the truth. And the irony is this, is that you look into oneself to find truth, but you look into others to find the wrong. Look at how this culture is reversed. They've reversed the order. I look into myself for truth, but I look outside there to find out what's wrong with the world. Again, no, no understanding of the fall. My encouragement for, you, for my brother to repent, or my sister, must come by seeing my own need to repent. And that the grace of God will meet us both there. Both of us there. There is grace enough for all of us. And like I said, you have to determine who, you, who it is you believe is irredeemable out there. And you have to believe that there is grace for them. This is what I believe Paul sees in relation to himself in the advent of Christ. Hopefully, you will see it too. In a world where people are desperate to be the best at something, can we at least take the opportunity here to make ourselves the best of sinners whom Christ came to save. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for, um, for your word. James likens your word to a mirror in which we come to, Lord, to see ourselves. You know in which, dear Lord God, we have a clear view of ourselves, and Lord, even as we think of our mirrors in our own lives as a, as a means to kind of putting ourselves in order, I pray that the mirror of your word, as we look at the advent of why Christ came into the world, is, is the purpose is to save sinners, and if my goal, if my heart is not that I want to see as many people saved, then Lord, help us to get to that place. Help me to, help me and help us to think of who might be the irredeemable person in our own perspective? Who would we want to see won over for Christ? And may we make it our goal even to pray to that end, that we will be gracious enough to, to, um, to see the Lord God as we deal with other people in their sins, to do so, the Lord God, with the knowledge of God of who I am in front of you. You know, it's about being able to treat each other so tenderly. You know, it's not about not lacking firmness. It's about that tenderness, but assertive and certain message of the gospel that fits me also fits you. Our sanctification may look very different. I may have to give up very different things from another person, but Lord, yet we are justified in the same way. Help us, Lord, as we, we push towards this goal. Help us, Lord, even as we look forward to this week of prayer. Lord, maybe this will be the time that we can spend on ourselves that protracted time. You know, sermon is, you know, what, 30, 45 minutes, Lord God, and it's that time. But, Lord, as we take each day to pray and, and, and not to lose this vision of, of what it is 
to be saved by grace. Lord, may that time be helpful to us. So Lord, we are never out of the Advent as I've, as I've declared and as is true. And so Lord, help us to, to always have it in our mind that, Lord, that I am probably the, you know, that I am the chief of sinners. And I'm probably not who I think I am. Help us, Lord, as we soften our hearts, Lord, for others. May we, Lord, see divisions, Lord God, that we that were maybe quite clearly there during the course of 2020. Let them see. We pray that God in 2021 will see them vanish. We won't let that judgment which comes upon the world come upon us as well. We won't allow the world to be our teacher. We will allow you to be our teacher. So that that which divides them out there will not divide us in here. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.